Hello and welcome. You are listening to the Investor Lab, the auditory epicenter for passionate people seeking a life of freedom, choice, and abundance. And on today's show, you are in for a treat. I have my friend Charlie uh, join me on the show. Um, last episode we did, he asked me a whole bunch of really great questions and we kind of followed that same theme today. And we actually hit on a topic which I love and I'm so passionate about and it's something that property investors do not think about and that is modern portfolio theory and the efficient frontier. So we tackled questions like uh, buying cheap versus buying expensive, will apartments and units have their day and investing in areas with stigmas but we really approached it from a different angle and that is what as I mentioned there, modern portfolio theory and finding the efficient frontier. And if you can start to understand these concepts, you will you will become a far better investor. You will achieve the things that other investors can't because you'll be thinking about it in the right way, not in a dogmatic way. And we really dig into that in this episode. So I'm super excited for your feedback on this show. Uh, if you have any questions or you want to provide any feedback uh, or if you want to let me know what you think about this episode, just send an email to til at dash dot.com.au. So that's till T-I-L, which is, stands for the Investor Lab, T-I-L, at dashdot.com.au. And of course, if you think that this episode is good, if you think this episode is value, please valuable, please make sure you share it with a friend, family member, or loved one because there is some dynamite in here. And I'm not just saying that because I said it. I'm saying that because most people don't think about it like this. So use this as your opportunity to expand the minds of the people that you love and send this to them as well. But without any further ado, let's get stuck right into it. I can't wait to share this with you. And I'll see you on the inside. Hey guys, welcome back to the Invest Lab. Joining me today again is my pal Charlie. Charlie, we had so much fun on the last episode where you got to interrogate me about a few different things that were on your mind. So we decided to do it again. Welcome back. How are you? Thank you for having me, Goose. I'm well. I will say though, based on our last conversation, you've spun my household into a completely different paradigm. Just uh, some of your answers triggered some very uh, interesting conversations. Seems like uh, we're getting the itch to make some moves. So uh, appreciate it. Nice, nice, nice. Well, look, I'm glad to be of service and I'm glad to stimulate. I, I love stimulating different ways of thinking and stuff. So if that happened in your household, Charlie, then then mission accomplished. I'm so, so stoked with that. So uh, I'm really excited. I know that what we're going to be t- tackling a, a few things today and I'm really excited to get into it. So where do you want to start? Yeah. So again, this is all just based on things that I really secretly just want to pick your brain about and understand that I think the audience is going to uh, benefit from. Yeah. So I'll, uh, I'll mention where this has come from because I think it helps set the context and then we can dig into these questions I've prepared because I think it will be um, a powerful thing to understand. So commonly what we see in the property industry or investing property industry is that there's these camps, right? You'll come out and someone will be like blue chip or then someone else will be like uh, regional and then someone else's cash flow and someone else is this and uh, don't invest in this area, but you should invest in this area. And I think for the uh, common person like me that is investing, it can be very confusing and it can also be very, very hard to form an opinion when you're not doing this stuff all the time and understand the thinking that went into it. So I've prepared some things here and the uh, first one I want to come out of the gate in, I kid you not, in the same day, I listened to a podcast or two podcasts where one said, you should be trying to buy cheaper properties. So this is properties primarily under 400000 And then on the other end, I listened to another one that said, there's nothing good to buy under 700000 And even a million is the new base. I was like, well, what a difference that is. Mm. So Goose, from your perspective and opinion, 
How do you feel about the difference between buying cheaper properties versus buying more expensive properties? So, firstly, I just want to say that anyone who has a dogmatic approach is getting it wrong, right? I'm just full, full, flat out prepared to say that. So, if anyone sits there and says you need to you need to buy X, need you need to buy properties over a million dollars, they're wrong. If anyone says to you you need to buy properties under whatever three hundred thousand dollars, they're also wrong, right? Now, that is not to say that they are absolutely wrong, but that they are generally wrong. Okay. Because what it all comes down to is understanding what's what's called modern portfolio theory. So that's an economic theory of portfolio composition. Okay. So if you think about like the biggest hedge funds and all of these kind of like, you know, super multi-billion dollar organizations, what they do is they map their portfolio based on the the risk return profile. Okay. And so essentially it the modern the, the graph that you end up with, right, is you end up with a you know an X and Y axis, and then there's a straight diagonal line that goes up to the right. And that is that represents the the capital allocation on a risk-free rate of return, right? So, you know, as if you could if you could find a risk-free asset, right, then that's where you put all the money and you'd end up with a straight line, right? It's kind of kind of how it works. Now, in practice, that's not possible to do, right? And so, what you end up happening, and what you end up with, is uh, on that same graph, you end up with a scatter plot of different assets all over the all. Uh, so, on the on the x and y axis, you've got risk and you've got reward, right? That's the that's the that's the graph, right? So, what you end up with when you, as you accumulate assets, you end up with them scattered all over the all over the graph, right? Uh, based on their risk and reward rate, okay. And then what you get when you when you group them and draw a parabola about them around them is you get your efficient frontier, right? So the idea in any portfolio is to establish the most efficient rate of return relative to the to the risk. Okay, now efficiency or or uh, uh, the efficient frontier is something that I really want to talk about in this, right? Because the efficient frontier comes down to not just the return, the efficiency of the return, right? But it also comes down to the efficiency of the capital allocation, right? And that's why capital allocation is a key component in the risk reward um, modern portfolio theory matrix, right? Now, so can you buy properties that are, let's say, hundred thousand dollars that are great properties to buy? Well, the answer is yes. Now. Define great, you know, but in the context of this, what we're talking about is properties that are going to perform well. You know, we'll just kind of broadly say that, right? Can you find properties for hundred thousand dollars in Australia that will do that? And the answer is yes, you can. Um, does that mean that you should buy all of those? Like your should consist your portfolio should consist of though all of those type of assets just because they're cheap and it were no, you absolutely should not. So can you also find properties that are over a million dollars that are great assets to buy? Yeah, absolutely, you can. Does that mean that you should consi- your portfolio should consist of uh, all of that? No, it shouldn't. Okay, and so what is really important to understand is the portfolio mix, right? And so one of the big problems with real estate, generally speaking, is um, it's highly illiquid, right? And most people get it wrong. Now, the most people getting it wrong part is interesting for for a, a much bigger reason, and that is because ninety percent of property investors never get past two properties. Very hard to build a uh, an efficient, diverse, balanced portfolio with two assets, right? Like it's like it's like you pretty much can't do it, and that's that's kind of the problem. So. The goal should be okay. How do I position myself so I can accumulate 
more assets because more assets equals more diversification. But then how do I think about those assets uh, in a broader context of my portfolio, right? So from a capital allocation perspective, it costs you more money relatively to buy a cheaper property. And the reason for that is some of the costs are variable, but some of the costs are fixed. So whenever you've got fixed costs, but variable prices, that then changes the the return profile of the property. So conveyancing is going to cost the same. Um, uh, building and pests is going to cost the same. If you're working with a with a with a company like Dashdot, that's going to cost the same. All of this kind of stuff. So you have all these kind of fixed costs, and so the relative amount that you might spend on a hundred thousand dollar property might be I don't know, maybe 30% of the, the property value to buy the property. But the same using the same um, you know structures and everything like that to buy I don't know a two million dollar property, it could be like nine percent. I, I you know I don't have the numbers in front of me. So you have a capital you have a capital efficiency basis but you also have a risk and a return profile change. So, I know I've waffled on a fair bit there. Do you have anything you wanted to kind of interject there? Yeah, we absolutely have to break this one down. We're going to rewind this one back and you've actually made a, a few points there. So, in practice, if we were going to describe modern portfolio theory, I believe that's what it's called. Yes. Okay, so we're we're an Australian property investor, and we want to apply this thinking in the real world. Yep. What we're suggesting here is that the optimal way to do a portfolio might be that you have one million dollar asset, and then maybe two smaller assets that offer the diversification or difference. So you're maybe it's to use an example, you might have a blue chip property in Melbourne, and then you might have something more regional in other parts of the country that come with more risk but potentially more returns. So we're playing this balancing game of this scale almost to get the best returns, where if I was to, again, just to use your example, if I'm only going to buy a million-dollar blue-chip assets in Melbourne, mm. that's I'm going to get stuck for other reasons and be very limited on how far my portfolio could go or the potential returns to come with that. Correct. And there's a few different vectors to that as well because the technical terminology for that kind of like, if you imagine all of your assets as a scatter plot on a graph, right? The technical term for that group of dots, right, is the opportunity set, right? So it's not about saying, um, all right, what is the specific formula of things that I need to achieve? Okay, I need one $1 million property that yields at 4%, and I need one $100,000 property that yields at 8%, and I need one $450,000 property that yields at 6%. It's not actually about doing that. And those math, that maths won't work, right? Because the opportunity set is specifically based on the assets that you can acquire in the current environment with the current constraints that you operate with. Okay. So if you said to someone, hey, uh, hey, Charlie, the best portfolio combination for you is to buy uh, one $100,000 property, one $1 million property, and one $500,000 property. But if they only have enough money to buy um, one property, well, you know, like maybe they, maybe, they, maybe they can't buy a $1 million property, for example. And so you've really got to adjust what the opportunity set looks like based on the right combination of assets and characteristics. There is another layer that goes into this, which is um, from a from an efficiency and a risk perspective. One of the risks that people face is stalling their portfolio. So it's not just about environmental risk. So it's not just about saying like, oh, okay, so I can buy one blue chip property and then I'm going to buy one like high risk property in a mining town, right? There's actually other risks that you've got to factor in there. So. One of the biggest risks, as I pointed out, is that people don't get past number two, right? 
most people never, most people don't get past number one, right? So, in fact, the biggest set of property investors is, prop- is people who have never started there at zero, right? So, uh, so, um, so that risk is real as well, and so you've got to calculate that risk too. It's not just about um, the return profile or the perceived environmental risk. It is also about the continuity and liquidity risk that you face. Because, for example, let's say that you bought two blue chip assets um, and you know, and let's say you were lucky enough and affluent enough to be able to do that because most people can't do that. Um, let's say you did buy two blue chip assets, but unfortunately that meant you had no borrowing capacity left and therefore you couldn't continue to buy any more properties. And therefore also, even if those properties did go up, let's, let's say that they grew really really well you know, and all of that kind of stuff, but you couldn't actually use any of the equity because you have no liquidity. That's a risk because all of your capital, all of your capital has become siloed and stagnant and therefore you have opportunity costs. So understanding risk actually is a bit like an onion. Uh, but yes, so essentially what I'm saying is that you do have the, that risk profile analysis. So for example, when most people are starting, typically they're low on capital, but high on borrowing capacity. Typically, okay. So the thing that they need, they think that the thing that their portfolio needs more of is um, capital appreciation, but they also need to do it in a you know uh, a cash efficient way so they can maintain liquidity. So there's a few other layers that go into it. Yeah. So this is in your book. You've got a fantastic chart about the uh, base stage, then you've got the acceleration stage, yeah. then the legacy stage. It, it does tie into that. Shameless plug for the book. You should go buy it and read it if you haven't and listen to this podcast. Okay. Um, I, I really resonate with the idea where the biggest thing that stands out is uh, personal, right? Mm. It's actually you in this circumstance. So like the difference between myself and then someone who's got a billion dollars of capital behind them. It's like this game is completely different when it comes to what their right portfolio mix would be. So when we're listening to these, you know, again, coming back to the question, only buy 400, only buy properties at a million, is that it's such a blanket statement that if you were to act alone on that without taking personal circumstance or potentially getting some advice, that it could potentially leave you in a hole through not thinking these things through. And again, to use your examples, if you went all million properties, you followed this advice blindly, you get caught in negative gearing, borrowing power destroyed, stuck for 10 years, yeah. or you have to sell. Other side of things, you go all well, $100,000 properties, you end up in a property management mess. You end up with uh, 50 of these things and you've got tenants calling you every day or property managers or whatever it is. Like There's really the opportunity to swing too far or yeah. you're all in a mining towns or, or whatever it is that potentially could run you a mess there. So where would you... Uh, I'm almost like, I'm not sure how to frame this, but where does someone start with this? Like, how do they approach this? Um, yeah, so just just to touch on that point that you made, it is highly personal, right? It is highly personal, which is which is why I will absolutely say that anyone takes anyone who takes a dogmatic approach is someone who is getting it wrong inherently, right? So that's why that is wrong. It's not to say that the things that they are saying are specifically incorrect; that pro, the pro, properties will perform whatever. But it's that it cannot, by definition, it's a di- it's a dynamic equilibrium, is what it is. So, where do people start with it? Well, it really I don't want to like distill this down into like super basic stuff, but it totally depends on where people are at financially, spiritually, emotionally, all of that kind of stuff versus where they're trying to get to, right? Someone could have a high um, EQ and FQ, like they and a high risk profile, and they could be like, right, I understand money, I understand what I'm doing, I, I'm 
like I've got a high level of emotional intelligence. I I've got a, I understand my risk profile. I think of maybe an entrepreneur, an entrepreneur, a business owner probably fits that category. You right? definitely described that pretty much. <laughs> yeah, exactly right. <laughs> exactly. Now that great, great, awesome, right? Um, but also, we also then got to go. Okay, well, how much capital have you got, and how fast are we going to go, and like, what is the what is the end goal, and you know, all of these different things matter. They all matter a lot, right? Um, so look generally speaking broadly speaking we do tend to find that um we f- w- because because what we do for most of our clients is a balance of risk and return so it's not on the peripheries of either um and so the peripheries the peripheries of the risk return profile are things like blue chip and are things like you know mining towns okay and they have a place in a portfolio right they absolutely have a place in a portfolio but for most of our clients because you've got to remember that as i mentioned earlier the largest the largest set of property investors are at zero they haven't yet started (laughs) right the second largest set is at one property and the third largest set is at two properties uh and after that the drop-off rate is just so tremendous right so when you're starting out, finding the optimal balance is probably more important than trying to find the extreme outliers. So rather than going, okay, I'm going to pick two ends of the spectrum and then my efficient equilibria is going to be somewhere in the middle, it's actually probably better to try and aim for the middle, right? And then expand outwards. Uh, I tend to find that that is a much, uh, it's a much more structurally sound way to approach it because you can build a platform, which is why we talk about, you know, in the apex progression, which you mentioned in the book, we talk about things like building a foundation, building a base, right? That, abay- that base is typically going to be on a, on a balance. It's not going to be low risk and it's not going to be high risk. It's going to be like medium risk. And it's also going to be like probably medium return. You probably it might not go grow as fast as a um, a mining town location, but also uh, it's pro- probably not going to crash like that either. And you know, you've got all these other things. So it's kind of balanced. And so I think starting in the middle and building that out because it because in that in that way, even if you get even if something changes, right? You might lose your job, you might I don't know, move overseas or you might whatever, just stop wanting to invest in property. Then at least in that in that scenario, you have a portfolio which will be sustainable and you know will have resilience and, and will be a good long-term decision without having to operate on the peripheries, whether it could cause you stress and risk in a variety of different ways, whether it be cash flow negativity, you're feeding the beast, or any of these other kind of things. So, so my view is to start in the middle. And then once you build a platform, then you can start to expand from there. And I, I've had loads of those conversations with our clients who we've helped to build that platform and then have Rich, they're now standing on the platform and they're going, okay, well, I achieved that thing that I set out to do and now what? And that's where the conversation then goes to, okay, so now that you've got the base, well, let's actually start thinking about some other things. And depending on the profile, financial, emotional, and that kind of stuff, that then dictates where you want to go next. Um, and so if you've built the base and then you've got, I don't know, tons of cash flow from your business or whatever, but... Uh, low risk profile and you're playing a 30-year game or whatever, well, maybe the next step from there is to actually to go buy maybe a blue chip something, something. Um, if you you know, if you want to go in another direction, you can view in another direction and then you start to expand it and then you start to build that efficient frontier. Yeah, I, I love the thinking behind this so much and it's probably something not spoken about broadly. And I, I get it, right? A lot of these companies out there or people that work in these industries, they've built a brand around uh, a tactic, 
So, you know, it's a rooming house person or a cash flow person or a blue chip person. So if they start saying this, it kind of goes against what they've built resonance with their audience. And uh, to the point is many of these people have actually been astronomically successful following that, which I think is where uh, things get more interesting. Um, But I want to jump into the next question here because it ties into this nicely and something I've been very, very curious about uh, myself. In the past 12 months, at least, maybe even longer, the broad message in the market is that units and apartments are trash. You know, they're falling down, the construction's dodgy, the CBDs are empty, like they have cop. I don't think there is a more hated property asset in Australia than Melbourne apartments right now, CBD apartments. Like they definitely are being... I don't know if it's unfairly, maybe it is fairly, but what I would like to know, Goose, is do you believe that units and apartments will ever have their day again? Are they even worth considering at some point? Yes. Interesting. Can you expand on that? <laughs> yeah, I could, of course I could expand on that. Um, so the thing is, look, we talk about this all the time, right? So uh, our general thesis for clients that we work with is that we buy a we buy houses, right? Detached, standalone houses, not apartments, not townhouses, etc. Right? Because generally speaking, all things being equal, houses will grow more than townhouses or apartments or units. Now, we also buy duplexes, which is two units stuck together. Okay, so we're actually, we're kind of actually are buying units as well. We also buy apartment blocks. You know, three packs, four packs, up to six packs. I think is the big, six, six packs the biggest we bought. Right, so we're so we're buying units. We're just buying them in a in a you know coagulated mess or a, or lump. You know, not a mess, not a mess, <laughs> a block, right? an asset block, Charlie. Actually, yeah, uh, shameless, shameless plug for the new podcast. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> if you're interested, if you're interested in learning about Charlie's podcast, where they go, Charlie. Uh, assetblocks.com.au or search Great. the uh, podcast stores. <laughs> Perfect. Awesome. So um, the thing is, you know, we, we are kind of buying units anyway, but the general thesis is, is houses will outperform um, apartments or units. So for the, just for the simplicity of the discussion, we'll just call them, we'll call them units, right? And we'll, we use that as a broad categorization of all of those, um, basically anything that's, that's submitted that is part of a strata plan or anything like that. Okay. Simple. Now, if you look at if you look at this if you look at the maths, generally speaking, houses will outperform units. That's just that's just the facts of the growth, right? There's a whole bunch of reasons for that. However, like I said earlier um, uh, about the people who have a dogmatic approach to to uh, you know property strategy or whatever, um, that can be generally true, but it's not absolutely true, right? So so there are plenty of markets that exist where units are outperforming houses pretty much all the time. Like pretty much, not that they're outperforming all the time, sorry, but at all times, there is probably at least some locations in Australia where units are outperforming houses, right? And there's a variety of different reasons for that. Could be lifestyle, could be affordability, all of this kind of stuff. Generally speaking, as uh, our population changes, there is a propensity for people to... uh, to want to live in apartments, partly because of affordability, but also we have what what we call the loner effect, right? Because traditionally people would um, live, like, you know, young people would grow up, they'd live at home, they'd stay living at home until they found their their life partner, then they'd move in with their life partner and then they'd start a family. So they basically go from 
they basically, or, or so they get married and then they move into like the family home and start a family. That was kind of the more traditional model. So you had family units staying as a family unit until that family unit went and created another family unit. And so the demand was consistently for houses because it was a family home to another family home. Now, as the way that we live has changed and more people are staying single for longer, um, so they're moving out and doing all that kind of stuff, the demand for space is not the same as it was, right? Which is good because we we couldn't we just couldn't sustain that level of housing growth anyway. Which is why there is you know broadly speaking a greater trend to apartments and more condensed living and all of that kind of stuff because you also get the affo- the affordability or that that kind of level of efficiency as well. Now the problem comes with supply. So if you look at places like Brisbane and Melbourne where there's been oversupply issues. That's a problem, right? So that's where it can that's where it can have a negative effect if if there are, and you know, with apartments, the sky's the limit, right? Quite literally. So so that's where the problem comes into it. Now there are other markets though where the supply is constrained either uh, either through deliberate pl- uh, council planning or through you know for a variety of different reasons, and so apartments can outperform houses. And I know that I'm going to I'm pulling a lot onto the table here, but it's I want to try and get it all out, and then we can dissect it. The other thing to consider in the context of what I was talking about earlier, modern portfolio theory, is about the efficient frontier. Okay, now you can find often that apartments or units may produce higher yields, and in many cases, higher net yields, even after strata fees and all of that kind of stuff. So depending on where your portfolio is at, you may actually reach a frontier where adding apartments into or units into your portfolio makes sense from a cash flow perspective, right? So to give that some color, let's say that you have, let's say that you have built up a portfolio, you've got tons of equity and you've kind of like already built, you've built that base, you've got the base, I've got the base, it's growing, I'm happy. I, if I do nothing, I'm, I'm good. Like that's when you know you've got the base, it's when you can hit save and say, if I do nothing from here on out, Life's sweet. That's what that's that's the way I see it. If you get to that point and then you go, you know what? I just want to I just want to like pump it all. I'm going to start buying like cheapy apartments all over the place that are like eight, nine, ten percent yield, all that kind of stuff. Then that can that can make sense too. And so, uh, again, generally speaking, we tend to prefer to go towards houses, but that doesn't mean that apartments don't have a place in a portfolio. And also, apartments and units can outperform houses depending on the market conditions. So maybe let's pull that apart. Okay. So I just want to, um, oh, I almost think that's a deeper question I'll ask on this, but I want to go back to something as well. All right. Let, let's say you're in the beginning of your journey and there's the option to buy houses or apartments. In general, houses have done better from a growth perspective yes. and apartments have uh, had some challenges as the media has said. If you went hard on apartments early and didn't get the growth that came from houses, you're basically setting yourself up to make the next moves harder because you wouldn't necessarily maybe have the equity to do so. Correct. You may have some better cash flow, so that may be a different advantage or way of doing it. Um, so that's the like general premise. But later on, if you've got that foundation, this might be a way to crank the overall yield on the portfolio or use equity to maximize it. Yeah. Yes. Yes. And to to that point, where most people go wrong is that they think, I want to start investing in property. Apartments are cheaper. I will start by buying apartments. And they hit that exact problem. Um, I know Jason, who's on our team and who's been on this podcast before, he had that exact problem. Like he literally had that exact problem. He bought an apartment. It was a really bad, it's, look, it was a total nightmare. Um, 
we actually had someone reach out to us recently and they they have bought, I can't remember, they bought a, a number of really small apartments, like studio apartments, but they're less than 50 squares. And so then, so the, the cash flow on them is like ridiculously good, right? But he can't refinance any equity out of it because the banks don't like it and all of this kind of stuff. And he's like, well, what do I do now? Like, do I just need to sell them all and start again? And, and you know, Kinda. I mean, if if we if Charlie we had a uh, a fractional property liquid liquid real estate exchange, which you know just seeding that in this podcast right now might be something that's coming in the horizon. Then so. that, that individual might be able to sell off a fraction of those, keep some of the cash flow and li- liquidate it. But in the current state of the environment, yeah, you're probably going to sell the assets. So this is why it's important to think about how you're building the portfolio, the structure of your portfolio as you go, as opposed to um, you know acting on your emotions and and all of that kind of stuff. Because to your point, if you build up the equity base first, then start adding apartments and stuff later, that is a much that is a much more uh, congruent way of doing it because you'll keep moving in the right direction, as opposed to you know starting starting at the end and you know trying to work back doesn't work. This is one of those interesting things where it's like it opens a deeper topic about, I don't think people realize uh, that the debt you get in investing property investment isn't all equal either. Yeah. So it's like if you get some debt tied up in that studio apartment under 50 squares, like that borrowing becomes, uh, well, I'm going to say like a semi-liability yeah. because of how it's unfavored with the banks for future moves, where it's yeah. like if you've got blue chip property debt, like especially if there's a heavy amount of equity, the banks love it. They know they can feel very certain that. And I even think, I mean, don't quote me on this, but there's certain towns that the banks won't even lend in to the same rate. Yeah, 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 totally. Yeah, they risk rate different towns and stuff like that. And yeah, yeah, all of that factors into into your portfolio decisions because, again, one of the biggest risks is that you get stuck. (laughs) Okay, well, one more thing I just want to bring into this. I want to imagine that from here, so from today, houses grow at 10%. Um, which again, I'm laughing because it's like, if you said that three years ago, Goose would have like, yeah, right. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, last yeah, few years. Totally. Yeah. Um, anyway, an apartment grow at five. So there's a divergence. Yeah. Okay. So this splits off and then we're 10 years later and that has occurred. Surely at some point, there's got to be something where uh, people look at the value and that that value exchange is just such a better comparison where apartments will have their day. Do you I, see I, that happening or not? I think I think that really depends on your perspective, right? So, a, a different way to think about this to probably give it some context, right? Because wealth is awesome, but cash flow is king, right? So, you want to build wealth so that you've got a stable base and so that you can essentially start converting that wealth into cash flow. That's for most people, that's the goal. So, if you like, if you level up your thinking, and if you imagine you're a billion dollar. Um, investment fund, like, I don't know, like Blackstone or something like that. They don't invest for growth. They invest for cash flow, right? They get some growth. So they buy commercial assets, which historically perform worse than residential assets in terms of growth, right? But they're buying it for the yield. Now, the reason that they're buying it for the yield is because they've already got the capital, like they've got a billion bucks, right? And so depending on where you're at, that's that's what's going to matter most because you also got to remember cash flow increases over time as well, right? So if the if the rate of growth in rents is five percent a year, that's five percent on five percent on five percent. It compounds as well, right? So your cash flow goes up. So that's where you need to think about where where that sits for you. If your if your goal is to build the greatest amount of wealth because you're going for like a multi generational play, then yes, taking that kind of like. 20-year time horizon with a 5% divergence a year, it might make sense to try and go more for growth. However, if your goal is to retire on the most amount of cash flow, then you may take one path for a certain period of time. 
I don't know, five years or so. Maybe you'll go, right, we want to maximize our growth opportunity for the first five years of the portfolio. We want to just, we want to smash it. We want to get to like whatever, three, four, five million dollars of available capital in our portfolio. And then you might just go pump all of that available capital into high cash flow assets, which are going to give you the liquidity that you need to be able to take that money and, and reuse it. And also to give you the income that you need for the rest of your life and also do it in a diversified way. Because you've also got to remember, if you do it like that, so let's say you start building a portfolio and then we, I'm using five years, but who knows what it's going to be for you, right? Let's say over five years, you end up, you get, you get loads of growth and you build up a huge big capital base and you get loads of equity and it's wonderful. And then you then start taking that equity to go and buy cheaper assets, which are units and apartments typically and stuff like that. You're probably going to buy more of them. So let's say you've got, let's just say you've got five properties in your portfolio uh, to that point, And then you start to diversify. You might be able to go and buy five or 10 apartments, right? And all of a sudden, the diversification in your portfolio is, is broader as well. And so you're diversifying your risk, diversifying your income streams, creating greater stability so that you don't have just like one or two or three or four or five income streams coming from your portfolio. You may have 15, in which case... The, the risk of loss of income through like rental vacancy or stuff like that becomes diminished as well. And so that then again lends into the efficient frontier on the risk risk reward profile as well. Such an interesting topic. This is uh, the other side of it, right? And I'll come back to the start of this conversation in general is like when you hear these blanket statements without making them situational, it's like for someone that might actually be the greatest move ever for them right now to just go hard on apartments. Yeah. Look, I'll, I'll, be, I'll, be, I'll be completely honest, Charlie. Like I am... I am actually kind of looking forward to the time where that makes sense for Gabby and I. <laughs> because I think it'd be oil, which like going by 10 or 15 apartments once you've built the capital base, right? And so uh, it makes sense at a certain point in time, but it's really, as you said, it's personal. You've got to think about this, like there are, is other stuff to it, but it does, it does and can make sense. So to your point, will apartments and units have their day? I think in every portfolio, there, there is no such thing as a bad asset. There is just a uh, bad asset selection. It's so interesting, Goose. It's uh, so maybe apartments are already having their day. Should have reframed it. But um, I find your comment interesting about looking forward to that point. Is like I, I, I must say this is something that comes up for me. I see these small purchases. Let's say it's two hundred grand or something, and I just go like, oh, "That's just not going to have a big enough impact." I look at it and go like, "When you buy a million dollar asset, there's and this is complete ego, by the way. There's not; it's unfounded in reality. I get that, but there's a, a subtle joy in buying something for like a million bucks. It just feels like you got a lot done. It's like a good day's work." <laughs> yeah, yeah, and again, there is a capital efficiency piece there as well, right? Completely. So, swings and roundabouts, swings and roundabouts. Alrighty. Well, I want to jump into our next question here because I feel like this is uh, ties into this topic. I love how it all ties into the same theme here. Mm. Something that I've uh, noticed immensely is that properties have stigmas mm-hmm. and they can be good stigmas and they can be bad stigmas. And I'll give you an example is uh, once upon a time, I used to live in Brighton, Victoria, um, which is quite a, an affluent suburb. And uh, it would surprise me when we would go out for dinner, maybe with some people or we would go to a party and someone would ask where I live. And if I said Brighton, they would change. Like their demeanor would change. They would be like, oh, well, you must, you know, be doing well or something of that nature. You know, I was quite, I was just yeah. at, you know, a house. Reverse of that is that, you know, there's areas that come up, and I'm going to label three here Logan, Frankston, and Mandra, uh, which is in Perth. And hopefully I've said that. Is it Mandura? No, it's Mandra. You got it right. Mandra. Mandra. Now you look at those three uh, suburbs there, and if they get mentioned, in a Facebook group, like it explodes in polarization of like 
basically high crime rate, high unemployment, it's the end of the world, your house is going to get stolen, wheels off your car. And like, I look at that and go, but is it a good investment? Mm. And I've been very curious from your perspective how stigmas do. Like, are these stigmas advantages because maybe a lot of investors won't touch them? Have they performed well or not well? What's your view on this? So I have probably unsurprisingly some uh, established and potentially contrarian views on it. So firstly, um, when the facts change, like so there's an awesome quote from, it's either from Winston Churchill or John Maynard Keynes, no one can ever quite work it out, but it's when the facts change, I change my mind, right? And that is really important for any investor to remember. So uh, there are locations that we are currently looking at buying for our clients, which if you go back through our podcast episodes, you would hear me specifically you know, canning out those areas at, for, for, for valid reasons at the time, like for valid reasons at that time. But things change, environments change, inputs change, all of that kind of stuff. So you need to be able to remain limber. Can I, can I just jump in on one that I see is like, if you were to go back maybe three or four years ago um, before the migration to Brisbane, yeah. Okay. And you looked at an area like Logan which is like potentially maybe not doing well at that time. I'm making it up. I don't have the facts. Um, But then 43,000 people net migrate to Brisbane and all of a sudden there's a massive economic push. There's massive infrastructure projects, which could be, I don't know. Um, But anyway, that whole environment and landscape has changed. Yeah. Supply and demand is just shift. Everything's been taken. That would be the type of event or fact change. That would correct. have changes in investors. Correct, correct. Yeah, correct. So it's usually a combination of uh, demographic, psychographic, and economic um, factors, which would change, which change the facts, right? Now, the problem with most investors is they make bad decisions. In fact, let me just ex- expand that. The problem with most people is they make bad decisions, right? And the reason they make bad decisions is that most people don't make logical decisions. They make emotional decisions and then try and back it up with logic, right? This is the fundamental problem that most people have with decision-making generally, and property investors specifically have this issue, right? Because they will have an emotional view on a location or a strategy or whatever, and then they will uh, try and support that by finding facts that support their decision. So you can find facts that support anything, and when you do that, it's cognitive bias, right? And this is this is this is the underlying reason why I think most people don't get what they want, particularly out of their property portfolio. Like I, I think I think one of the biggest saddest things about property investing is that most people never actually get what they want out of their portfolio. Most most property investors are obsessed. Like a pack of weirdos. If you're listening to this, you're one of them too, probably, right? It's it's like the people that go to the personal development events but never get the, they love the going to the events. Yeah. They yeah, never yeah. turn into the person they wanted to. Exactly, exactly. They do all the stuff, they like do the thing, and they think that if they just love property enough, if they talk about it enough, if they're in enough Facebook groups, if they if they scroll uh, ease up, ease <laughs> up. This is a good portion of my life. <laughs> no, 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 no. But like, but they think that if they do that, that is the thing that will give them success because somehow right. they will they will uh you know synthesize, you know, some arbitrary thing. But at the same time, they're not prepared to adjust the way that they think and they're still acting on the basis of emotion, right? So um, 
the other thing to consider, so so there's that. So so just to just to reiterate this because it's a really strong point. Most people don't make logical decisions; they make emotional decisions and then try and support it with logic. And that is cognitive bias. That is the problem that most investors face. Now, moving past that and then talking about locations specifically which do have stigmas and how that can change, that is actually that can actually be a great growth driver. And in fact, Gabby had uh, Gabby came up with a funny theory once, which is we haven't yet proven it to be true, but I call it Gabby's Gabby's Commodore theory of growth. And she believes that if you find locations that have got loads of Commodores parked on the front lawn, that's probably a sign the area is going to grow, <laughs> right? So... <laughs> Which is interesting because if you actually break it down, what you're talking about is you're talking about um, gentrification, you're talking about demographic shifts, psychographic shifts, and all that kind of stuff. And some of the some of the greater like there are there are a variety of things that drive property markets, right? But psychographics is probably one of the biggest ones. And if you look at any area, like when I was living in Melbourne, for example. Uh, I was living in Richmond uh, initially, and then then Richmond started getting you know gentrified and more expensive. Rent started going up, so then I moved around to Fitzroy because that was still grimy and grungy. And then uh, then that started gentrifying, and the rent started going up there. And then I moved around to Footscray, and then and then like the gentrification moves, and those areas which once were bad areas become very affluent areas. So if I think of Yarraville specifically in um, in Melbourne, like I know property, I've met property owners right there who bought their property in Yarraville for like 50 grand or 75 grand or something like that. And now that same property is now worth, you know, multiple millions of dollars because it has because the environment has changed, right? And so moving past that stigma to look at the facts, I think is one of the is one of the key things for people to understand. And you've got to be prepared to say that you're there's a there's a there's a saying um, there's a saying in, in is a French phrase that I know from my French friend Julian right he he tells me all the time he said only idiots don't change their mind and uh, and I think that is so true because you know you talk about Manjo you talk about um, you talk about uh, uh, Logan and I can't remember the other one that you mentioned but yeah look maybe that viewpoint about it maybe being uh, lower socioeconomic demographic potentially not being a good area to invest uh, all of this kind of stuff may be true. Even the demographic profile may still be true right now, but that doesn't mean that it's a bad place to invest. So looking beyond that, I think, is the key. Oh, sorry. Sorry about that. My, um, my podcast uh, equipment fried itself, uh, unfortunately. So something happened. Had a short. Had a, yeah, something happened and it just it was switching on and off and my computer was trying to flip between the two. So we had a little bit of a technical issue there. So I missed that awesome soliloquy that you had. Do you want to give me the kind of cliff notes? Uh, Altona, I thought it was haunted because of the abattoir in Melbourne. It was a yep. story around like, uh, you've got to be careful, like bad things have happened here. And then I've been there more recently and it's like beautiful. And um, I have a friend who doesn't live far from Mandra and he's like, what are you talking about? It's a dive. There's beautiful homes here. <laughs> yeah. Like, you talk to the people in the area, some of them, and I'm sure there's a, opposing opinions to that, but it's just, it's funny how these stigmas, and I think you made a really excellent point about it changes. It really does change. You know, it's so funny you, you mentioned talking to the locals, right? Because um, I remember talking about this specific uh, angle around about two, three years ago nearly, right? Because talking to the locals can be really revealing, but it can be both on both sides. Because um, sometimes when you talk to the locals, you'll discover that things aren't like the stigma, like in Mandra. Like they'll be like, what are you talking about? It's beautiful. There's nice beaches. The houses are nice. There's good stuff here. It's a great place to live. It's like, oh, oh, that's contrary to the way that I was thinking. 
but also some sometimes when you speak to locals you can you can uh discover that they also don't know what's going on and that can actually be another competitive advantage as well so if you have enough facts to tell you or to point to the fact that an area is about to grow but then you you know speak to some locals and they're like oh you wouldn't want to live here nah it's just it's no good that's probably a good sign because you're probably going to be able to get the property prices for cheaper and less than their intrinsic value. So understanding all of that kind of stuff and understanding those variables, I think is a key to, to making good property decisions. Yeah. Awesome. I think I just think a lot more if Elon Musk was building a mega factory in mm. uh, Andrew, for example, and I'm not picking on that. I'm just saying it's like, that would be another thing that would radically change a suburb if a big event or an Amazon factory or another one like that could be a big thing as well. But Goose, um, you've answered all my questions today, and I know um, a very in-depth understanding of these topics here. So thank you for having me on again, and thank you for, uh, I suppose, letting me pick your brain on these very important issues. I I, I love this, right? Because um, things like uh, modern portfolio theory, the efficient frontier, stuff like that, I love it, right? And this is, this is I think, a side of um, investing generally that people don't think about, full stop. Uh, and it's definitely not a topic that is discussed in property investing because I don't know why, but I think if I think it's really it's a really great platform for us to be able to talk about this kind of stuff. And yeah, it really kind of underpins the the thinking behind all the stuff that we do, particularly everything that we talked about today, even making logical decisions, not emotional ones, and how to think about structuring your portfolio really plays into the key, the heart of what we're trying to help people do. Like fundamentally, we want to help transform the way the world invests so that we can improve the lives of, of all of the people that we touch. That's that's really a big part of what we do. But doing doing that means we all need to change the way we think because the way that people invest in property is broken. It doesn't work. You've got to do it differently to get different results. So, um, Charlie, I've really enjoyed this chat. Thank you so much. Um, thanks so much for your time. Really, really appreciate it. Um, great questions. And I look forward to speaking to you again soon. My pleasure, Goose. See you on the next episode.